Our passage today that we're going to read is John chapter 13, 1 through 19. I'm going to read it from the ESV. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen. Uh, John 13, 1 through 19. All right. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher, I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a master greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as your word opens up to us, I pray that we would understand what you've asked. Do you understand what I have done to you? I pray we would know, we would understand. I pray that it would have its due effect and it would Change us according to the implications. As we sung, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would meet us here and show yourself to us today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Do you understand what I have done to you? It's his question. As I pondered the passage this week, that one sort of jumped out at me, that line, and it sort of hung there, it sort of haunted me. Do I understand what he has done to me? And it reveals several big things about the passage. For one, it reveals that Jesus isn't just washing people's dirty feet. Do you understand what I've done to you? Yes, you've cleaned my feet off. No, no, do you understand the meaning behind what I've just done 
to you. There's more to it. It's a real life parable that Jesus is acting out. There's significance behind every detail that's shared. Two, he wants us to understand the full gravity of the meaning about what he's done for us personally through the incredible significance of the cross and what it means for us, the extent of Jesus's love being revealed, as it said. But not only for us, notice he doesn't just say, do you understand what I've done for you? He says, do you understand what I've done to you? There's a difference. Jesus is claiming that through his cleansing work on the cross, he has changed something. He has altered his people. He's altered us. Our standing is changed. Our position is changed. Hopefully, our hearts are changed. And as Jesus points out, the result should be a change in the way we live. I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. So, do you understand what he has done to you? What he's done to you? Let's take a look. He knew that the hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now loved them to the end. Or as some translations put it, he now showed them the full extent of his love. We're shifting gears a little bit because the book of John shifts gears a little bit. The first half of the book of John is referred to as the book of signs because repeatedly John says these signs were there to point to his glory. And again and again when Jesus performs these signs, he says things like, my hour has not yet come. And now this story opens with the hour had come. And the whole second half of the book of John is all about the last couple days of Jesus' life, the hour of his glory. So we're calling it the hour of glory. And that's ironic in a way how John presents the concept of glory. When we think of glory, we think of something beautiful, high and lifted up, lofty, majestic. But John associates the hour of the glory of God with the most humiliating way to kill someone, an excruciating death that was meant to publicly shame them. And he says that the enthronement and exaltation of your king in all his glory is pictured in a naked man on a cross. That's the the irony of it. That's what John has in mind when he speaks of the hour of his glory, the hour of his departure. So we would understand that this story is pointing towards the cross in that hour. In particular, he now showed them the full extent of his love. So do you understand what I've done for you? Do you understand how he has shown us the full extent of his love? And so I'm going to break this down into four main sections. What Jesus lays aside for love what he takes upon himself for love, how far he's willing to extend his love and how we receive it, and how it changes us. So what Jesus lays aside, what he takes up again, how far he's willing to extend his love, how we receive it, and how it changes us. So for our first two points, Jesus has laid something aside and he took something up. And in the story, what is that? He laid aside his outer garments 
And he took up or girded himself, is what the the Old English would say, or the NASB would say, he girded himself with a linen towel. What do they represent? What do they mean? He laid aside his outer garments. Some of you came to church this morning dressed to impress. Some of you came and you dressed casually, not giving much thought to your outer appearance, and that's fine. We state on our website something to the effect of God sees the inside, not the outside. Come as you are. You're free no matter how you dress. There might be a few in the crowd who, your mama just didn't teach you much. No, I'm just kidding. I think you all look pretty good. Anthony's not here. I was going to pick on him. He'd most assuredly be wearing some ACDC shirt or something like that, but... But wouldn't you agree that to some extent, we present something about ourselves in the way we conduct our appearance? Whether we even realize it or not, we're communicating something about ourselves in the way we dress. There's obvious cases. If you're wearing a letterman jacket, you're saying something about yourself and your accomplishments, right? A military uniform with all of its badges and its honors represented. A wedding dress. There's a huge message that's being presented in a wedding dress, right? There's more subtle ones. You might wear a nice shirt and tie or your Harley Davidson t-shirt, but probably never the same two on the same day or event, right? You get the idea. In ancient times, a person's outer garment represented much more than the clothes that we put on today. Gordon Hugenberger, a pastor at Park Street Church in New York, has done a lot of research in this area. He's looked at the the concept of outer garments or robes in ancient times, not just in Israel, but all around that area. A robe was a symbol of an inheritance or a person's wealth or the legacy that was being handed down from generation to generation, usually passed on to the firstborn as the one who would carry on the family lineage and legacy and the name and so on. Brides who are getting married would often have their dowry sewn into the hem of their robes. Loan documents were signed by pressing the hem of your robe into a clay tablet and then baking the tablet. And if you defaulted on your loan, they would literally strip the robe off your back. That's where the phrase comes from. And what's being stripped from you is much more than your robe. It's what it represents, which would be your wealth, your property, your title, everything. You see this in the Bible, too. Adam and Eve, they're they're naked, but Psalm 8 says that they're crowned with glory. They have a, a robe of glory, so to speak. But after the fall, they realize they're naked. They try to cover their nakedness with garments of fig leaves. God makes them garments of animal skins, and it all has meaning. We look at Joseph, the story of Joseph, the youngest brother who receives the robe from his father. They don't just get jealous because he gave him a pretty thing to wear. They get jealous because the youngest son got the robe, showing his obvious favoritism to this little self-entitled brat. And so they sell Joseph into slavery and make it look like an animal slaughtered him, and they put blood on the robe and tear it up and give it back to the father and uh, let's, let's try again, Dad, right? Uh, one of my favorite messages to preach was when we were going through Genesis, the story of Noah and Ham. And the message was titled, 
the real problem with staring at a 600-year-old naked man. Because it's the weirdest passage, I think, in the whole Bible where Ham has, they've exited the ark, Noah, and he's planted a vineyard. He got drunk on the wine. He's passed out in his tent, and it says he took his garment and laid it aside. And then his son, Ham, the youngest son, came in and looked upon the nakedness of his father. And everyone's going, what does that mean? Some people means he did something really awful with his father. Some people mean that he slept with his own mother. Uh, there's all kinds of you know, questions about this. But if you just do a search for the term to look on the nakedness of something in the Bible, it means to take advantage of someone's weakness and exploit them in order to steal from them. So Ham is stealing the robe, the garment, from Noah. That's what to look on his nakedness means, to take advantage of his vulnerable state. You see that with Joseph. When Joseph is exalted as the second in command over all of Egypt, his brothers come in need, and they come to him, and they don't recognize who he is because they thought they'd sold their little brother into slavery. And Joseph knows who they are, and he says, you guys are spies. You've come to spy out the nakedness of the land. To stare at the nakedness of the land. What does he mean? He means they've come to spy it out and to take for themselves, right? They say, no, 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 we're not spies. But Joseph might know that. But he also knows them, that they looked upon the nakedness of himself when they ripped his robe off and exploited his weakness and sold him into slavery, right? That's what it means. So garments are a big deal. John is implying that Jesus' outer garment represents something that he is laying aside. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. What does that mean? John is presenting Jesus as a new Adam, a perfect human being as human beings were meant to be, something no one else has ever acquired for themselves. Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, prior to the curse, Genesis says that God had given mankind dominion over everything, minus the heavenly host, and said, fill the earth, subdue it, be fruitful, multiply. He'd given all things into their hands. Psalm 8 says, you've given mankind dominion over all the works of your hands, over the ground. But then after the curse, he says, now the ground will rule over you. And so this is going to be a struggle. And you have a, a pure, clean human being who is being reinstated with that inheritance. The Father owns everything, and Jesus' garment, at least symbolically, represents everything that the Father owns that is entrusted to Jesus. He's a pure, clean human. He had come from God and was going back to God. When God cursed man, he said, from dust you came, and to dust you will return. Jesus is a counter-curse human being, untainted by the dust of the earth. He will not return to the earth. He didn't come from the earth. He came from God and is going back to God. Dust of the earth. Remember that statement because it's going to come into play when we talk about Jesus washing the dust of the earth off of his disciples' feet. The dust of the earth always is spoken of in collusion with death and sin and the curse that is on all mankind, and we all have dirty feet. So Jesus 
is a picture of a God-man who is an ideal humanity reinstated on the throne, being given all things as mankind was meant to have, ruling and subduing through gardening, through serving. When we think of ruling over something, we think top-down, but the picture God gives in the garden is, I want you to rule the earth. He puts him in a garden and says, serve it, work it, and keep it. Create space for life to flourish and support one another. Serve each other. And that's the picture we get of what Jesus is doing in washing his disciples' feet. He's acting as a true gardener, a true human. So, the extent to which Jesus is emptying himself here is unparalleled. No one else has given up what Jesus has given up. No one else has laid aside a status as high as his or an inheritance as great as his and everything that he was entitled to. No one else has forsaken that as Jesus has. It is unparalleled what he laid aside for love. Secondly, what Jesus takes up upon himself for love. The word is he girded himself with a linen towel taking the form of a servant, a lowly slave. The cross as a mode of execution, not only to serve, to execute, but to publicly humiliate a person as the lowest form of humanity. He takes that upon himself. Apparently, linen cloth is most frequently correlated with a a priest and what they would wear when they would go into the tabernacle on behalf of the people and they would wash the blood off of their hands for the blood stain on the earth and they would wash the dust of the earth off their feet and only then could they go into the presence of God. And so Jesus is taking on a linen towel and he's washing their feet and he's removing their curse, at least symbolically here. The dust of the earth, collusion with death and the curse. He wipes their feet with the towel, John says, that he had girded upon himself. So, what do you think happens when your garment, when the garment you're wearing, is used to wipe someone else's dirt with it? You get their dirt on yourself. I have small kids, I know this well, it's a daily routine. What does the dirt represent? Our sin, the curse, death, from dust you came to dust you shall return. What did we say Jesus is girding himself with a towel represents? A new identity, a new garment representing a low humanity, the form of a a slave. Apparently there were laws, I said this last week, that certain people were not required to be forced to wash anyone's feet because it was so beneath everybody. Only female slaves and children could do it or were allowed to be forced to do it or something along those lines because they're all lower humanity or something like that. We don't think that. (laughs) But that was that culture. What does it all mean? In order to remove the dirt from their feet... He must apply their dirt to himself. Not just to towel them off as though he's holding a towel from the distance, but his garment, 
his new garment. The act of cleansing us from the curse of our sin and death, Jesus is wiping our sin and our death on himself. He's applying it to himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We would be cleansed. He's altering them. He's changing them. He's changing us. This is what he takes upon himself for love. Our dirt. Third, how far he's willing to extend his love and how we receive it. Peter's response, you're washing my feet? Never. Why? Because our, our broken picture of dominion and rulership is one of top down, not gardening or serving. Not human rule as depicted in the garden. Culturally speaking, for Jesus to take on this image of himself would be so low and so shameful. Peter just wants to honor him. So he's saying, no, no, you can't do that. But there is another side to what Peter's doing here, why Jesus rebukes his response. It sounds noble. No, no, Jesus, it is I who should be washing your feet. Sometimes our noble actions or good intentions can stem from the wrong place. A refusal to humble ourselves and be identified as one who needs to be cleansed. To deny Jesus' washing means we don't allow him to cleanse us. And to not allow ourselves to be cleansed means that we have no share in him, no inheritance. And that's what he offers Peter, right? What has he been given? All things from the Father. And he wants us to share in that. But he says, unless I cleanse you, you have no share with me. There's a statement called the mores of the gospel, they call it. I think Tim Keller coined it. Other people use it as well. But it goes like this. Here's the gospel in a nutshell. You're more sinful than you ever dared believe. You're more loved than you ever dared hope. More sinful than you ever dared believe and more loved than you ever dared hope. More sinful. Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And more loved. Jesus washed the feet of Judas, knowing that he would betray him. This is the extent, how far he's willing to reach for love. It's interesting how it introduces this new section and quickly interrupts it with Judas so that we know Jesus knew Judas had already been listening to his father, the devil, because that's what John, Jesus says in, in John chapter 8, right? He says, you say you're from God, but your father is actually the devil because you plan to murder me and murder is the way of your father, the devil. He's the father of lies. He only speaks lies and they're, you know, he gets in real trouble. They try to kill him, which only proves that they're listening to a different father. And so we have this contrast of fathers. Starts off with knowing that he was about to depart and go to his father. And then we have when Judas Iscariot, son of a father, Simon Iscariot, when the devil 
had put it into his heart to betray him. He's listening to a different father. And Judas is listening to that voice. And Judas would betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That's the inheritance that his father would offer. The abundance. 30 pieces of silver. And in the end, it crushes him. It destroys him. Depending on which account you read, he either hanged himself or he fell headlong and spilled his guts out. He returned to the dust of the earth. Jesus, as we have read, has a much bigger inheritance. The Father had put all things into his hands, and he's offering Peter, his disciples, and all who would be washed a share in it. All things, 30 pieces of silver. And knowing that Judas would betray him for his measly inheritance... Jesus still washed his feet. Later, see that though Judas had been washed, he wasn't cleansed as he had lifted his heel against Jesus. It quotes Psalm 41, verse 9, that says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. The imagery apparently is when you're about to strike someone dead, you know, strike them with a blow, your heel is lifted against that person. And when they'd be washing their feet at a table, the tables in this time were low to the ground and the way they sat around the table, they didn't sit, they reclined at the table, they would prop themselves up on their bellies and their elbows and their feet would be sprawled out behind them. And so as Jesus is washing their feet, it's their heel that is being lifted up that he's washing and so their heels are being lifted to Jesus, but one of them, as he's washing them, is lifted against Jesus. Very poetic language. That's how far he's willing to extend his love. He washes the feet and offers cleansing even to those who betray him. And again, how do we receive it? The gospel is... We are more sinful than we ever dared imagine. Do you believe that you need to be cleansed? Have you accepted that truth? Is there pride holding you back? Is there self-justification? He says, unless I cleanse you, you have no part with me. Jesus, having removed his outer garment, can then take it up again. And I believe that's symbolic of the resurrection because of all the passages that occurred, like in John chapter 3, where it says they did not understand what he was doing until later after he had been raised from the dead. And now this passage starts by saying, you do not understand, Peter, what I'm doing to you, but later after these things you will understand. And after he washes their feet, he takes on his outer garment, restores it, and then says, do you now understand what I've done to you? Something clicks after the resurrection, and we're going to get into that in a second. Do you understand what I've done to you? And there's two implications behind that question. One, do you get the meaning? Everything we've just talked about. I've cleansed you. I go to the cross to cleanse you. I cleanse you so that you can have a share with me, so that you can be where I am, a sinless human being, handed all things from the Father. Unless I cleanse you, you can have no share with me. And two, do you understand the implications and what it's supposed to do to you? 
more sinful than we ever dared imagine, more loved than we ever dared dream, that reality is meant to produce something in us. We are to become foot washers, to take off our outer garments and serve one another, to humble ourselves of our dignity and become naked, not literally, before him. And that's number four. This is how it changes us. Jesus washed Judas' feet. It's one thing to wash Peter's feet, faltering Peter. But to wash the feet of the one who would trample him down. He didn't come to just serve those who preferred to be served. He, prefer, he came to serve those who would prefer not to be served. He came to serve us. Knowing Jesus would betray him, he could have used this opportunity to avert the course of history leading to his own death. He could have clubbed Judas right then and there. He could have sent him out. He could have run away. He could have changed the tide of history knowing what he knew, but he didn't. He washed his feet. And now he says, I've given you an example that you should do what I've done to you. What is that? That's one that we should lay aside whatever dignity we think our letterman jacket represents, especially if we believe it entitles us not to serve. Remember, true human rule looks like gardening, getting your hands dirty. You can't follow his example if there is still servant work that is beneath you. And that's a struggle that takes a while to work through. That's a struggle for me. Two, we lay aside our inheritance. Your 30 pieces of silver is nothing compared with the share that Jesus offers you. Having material wealth is not a sin. But if you are not free to lay it aside in trust of your heavenly father, then you are a slave under its power. So we lay aside our inheritance. Three, take up the towel. We're not afraid of other people's dirt. We admit our own need of cleansing and we assist in the cleansing of others. A work that only Jesus can really accomplish. But a work that we participate in nonetheless because we're called to care for his flock. And there is no one not even the worst betrayer whom Jesus will not wash, though only they can decide whether they will receive it and be cleansed. Following Jesus' example is the only appropriate response for what Jesus has done to us and is only possible when we understand what he has done to us. If we don't understand it only becomes moralistic, legalistic, religious duty. And even a backward source of pride or a way to feel good about ourselves. So how do you know if you understand? Later, after the resurrection, Peter would understand. First, he would face the shame and nakedness of denying Jesus three times proving his need to be cleansed. And then in John chapter 21, 4 through 9, we read, 
early in the morning, a brand new day, a fresh start, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? Fish. Think abundance. Think inheritance. All things given to Jesus by the Father under his authority. No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's the author John referring to himself, said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Peter, Simon Peter, heard him say, it is the Lord, listen to this, he wrapped his outer garment around himself. Literally, the words are, he girded himself with his outer garment, for he had taken it off, literally in the Greek, for he was naked. I don't know if he was actually naked or like stripped down to a loincloth to fish with or something like that, and jumped into the water, literally threw himself into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Peter would have a share with Jesus. Lots of the same language here. Abundance, nakedness, girding, outer garment, water, sharing in abundance with God. What does it all mean? After all, if you were going to jump into the sea and swim 100 yards to shore, wouldn't you remove your outer cloak to swim better? John is being really intentional with his language here. It has meaning. Otherwise, why would he even bother to mention an outer garment? Because of the cleansing work of Jesus, Peter, found naked and empty having denied Jesus, can receive abundance from God. And he can take up his outer garment, just as Christ laid aside and had taken it up again, his outer garment. Peter suffered humility through his denial of Jesus, found naked in his shame before him, and is now being reinstated, clothed in his outer garments. He sees Jesus on the shores and he girds himself with his garment and is able to cast himself into the sea. What's the sea mean? Sometimes it means death, suffering. Sometimes it means the, the cleansing flood of judgment, the thing that Jesus maybe is washing his disciples' feet with, the water in the basin. Maybe the crystal sea before the throne of God in Revelation. And he emerges on the other side of the waters, able to stand fully clothed in the presence of the Lord of love, sharing in abundance. Galatians 3, 27 through 29 says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female 
For you are all one in Christ Jesus, if you belong to Christ. Then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And that garment does not even compare to your letterman jacket or 50 pieces of, 30 pieces of silver. Jesus would ask three times, correlating with Peter's three denials, Peter, do you love me? And Peter would say, Lord, you know that I do. Jesus says, feed my sheep. Do you understand what I've done to you? Yes, Lord. I now understand the full extent of your love. Then share the abundance. Share in the work. Feed my lambs. Have you been washed? Have you been cleansed? Next week, we have a baptism scheduled. This is the act that Scripture gives us as a means to respond to that invitation. If you want a share in Him with Christ, if you know you need to be altered, to be cleansed, if you want to dive into the waters and come out on the other side on the shore fully clothed in Christ, claimed as one of his own, why don't you join us next week? Why don't you join the man who has come and said, I want to do this. There's already someone who will be with you who's going to take that step. It's a great opportunity to join him. If you've never received Christ or been cleansed in this way, then I would offer you to begin with just laying yourself bare before the Lord and saying, God, I don't even know fully how to do this or what it means, but I know I need you. I want to share in you and not some measly 30 pieces of silver. I want to lay aside my pride, my sin. I want the dirt cleaned off. And only you can cleanse me. I know what it took for you to cleanse me, to take my dirt upon yourself, to take up the form of a servant, to lay aside everything God had given you. And if that's what it took and that's what you did for me, then wash me too. Let's pray. Father, we just give opportunity now for anyone who would like to pray that prayer just to, to say those things. Just even give you a minute just to lay that before God quietly on your own right now. Jesus, I thank you for the love that extended itself so fully it withheld nothing, emptied itself of everything, took on the trash of my life, and died the most shameful death, the shame I keep trying to avoid. We are naked before you, but you clothe us and cleanse us. So do your cleansing work now. 
For those who have received you, Lord, I pray that we would understand what you've done to us and that it would have its full effect, that we would share this abundance, get our hands dirty, share in the work of feeding your sheep, bringing your flock. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.